Okay, they have no law degree, they have no formal study of law. All they have is the books, and they start picking through them, like picking out pages of books and quoting this and quoting that, and start telling everybody what the law is and how it applies. You'd say, that takes a lot of nerve to do that. But let's say you've got a law degree, okay? So you're a lawyer. It's a big deal. Now you're a lawyer, and you've got all these books behind you, and you're quoting the law, but you're just a lawyer. I mean, lawyers go to trial. They they argue a case. And they win some cases and they lose some cases. Because there's always a judge who decides whether they're making you a case or not. And then even if you were a judge, okay, there's an appeals court. And your decisions are appealed and overturned. Now, in the scheme of all this, with regard to canon law, which is a law that has been around for uh, 2,000 years now, not just 200 years, or 150 years, or Ohio State laws around. 2,000 years. Imagine if somebody just like picked up a volume of Canada Canada law and starts pontificating. He's not, he's not even a Canada lawyer, let alone a judge and a tribunal. He's not. He just picks up a code of Canada law and says, cool. It should make him a laughing stop. Really? But, because of the situation prevailing today, because it is so bad. Someone like a John Salsa, who I think he was the former Mason, wasn't he? he must be a Freemason. I did read something about that. I think he was a Freemason. I mean, you know, because of the situation prevailing today, it's kind of impressive. But I mean, I've got all kinds of commentaries and code of law around here. But I'd be embarrassed to go around, you know, I can, I can cite a, a commentary on a code of law by a real canonist. And these are canon lawyers who were approved by the church so they could actually issue manuals of canon law and commentaries. But even the commentaries don't agree. The commentators dispute some questions. So who is John Salsa to be quoting canon law at you? Anyone? It's ludicrous. But I mean, the whole idea of quoting canon law at you is an exercise in futility. Why? Because as you say, very well. I mean, the circumstances today are not your standard circumstances, right? Um, if one does not acknowledge that the church is in a state of crisis right now, then yeah, they would say everything should be just like normal, right? So we should all be walking down the, the block to attend one of the five or six masses here, <laughs> you know? Don't eat cars because we're all living around our neighborhoods. Yeah, if they if they don't see that we're not in that situation right now, if they think we have a pope who's issuing like encyclicals uh, condemning modernism, if they think we still have that. <laughs> well, they can live in their fantasy land, but it is fantasy. Um, so, you know, there is a real divide between those who think that everything is just peachy and fine, and just as Catholic and Catholic as can be out there. And those who realize the church is in a state of crisis right now because what Pope Pius X told us 100 years ago, more than 100 years ago, is true. It's actually happening before our very eyes. We're not surprised because he said it was coming, right? I mean, when you, somebody like Pius X says, uh, when, the, when, the, when the train master says that there's a train coming through here at 12.03 p.m., get off the tracks, 
then you should probably be out the drive at about 3 p.m. as a train coming through. And we've seen that we're seeing the train come through. Why is the tenant song now? You warn us about it, you describe it, you explain it to us, you spelled it all out for us, analyzed it, gave us a good understanding of it, and here it is. So this is also a contentious house really wants up being a canon lawyer or the sacred tribunal or the sacred Roma Roman Roma if he wants to fantasize about that. And he can fantasize about the fact that they have put out a state of crisis. He's really off the track, but anybody who follows him is making a big mistake. Um, but that doesn't answer questions, really, because uh, I think the questions need to be asked. I think it's just very important uh, to realize, you know, when they listen to a video like uh, John Salsa, they've got to be very careful. Uh, realize what would start out with asking, what is the value of this? How reliable is this? Why should I be listening? But I was very glad to hear from you. But I wasn't very glad to hear from you because you told me that there was a problem. I mean, I had probably had those already before. <laughs> but I was, I'm just glad to hear from you because I think you're wonderful. I love you. <laughs> I'm glad you're still trying to hang out of the faith in spite of all this foof uh, and all going on out there. But also because, um, you know, for years now I've been uh, teaching classes there. And at the end of the the years, I always start talking about things that are going on in the church. You know, um, the last month or so, the school year, it's always a little bit of a rush. They're trying to get in things about Vatican II, uh, modernism, liberalism. You know, where this came from, how the ideas developed, and uh, the new mass. A little bit of information about the new mass. But I, I tell the, the students, well, you know, I'm telling you this because you're going to be dealing with this very soon. If you're not already dealing. Not only because your families, our families are all kind of divided among, you know, over the landscape here, but also because you have friends in the pro-life effort. They're all going to have different views. And uh, here in Cincinnati area, we have an especially acute situation uh, that they don't have. They don't have the chapel in New York or Minnesota or Montana. We've got everything here. We've got every single species. Quasi-traditional Catholic on the sun. Really, it's phenomenal how it's been concentrated here. We've got several varieties of uh, tulips, I think. Right? We've got we've got... Uh, Feeny-eyed. We have feeny Oh, we got feeny yeah. We've got it all, you know. Cincinnati has it all. So, you know, I was telling you, you're going to hear all this and you're going to be, you're going to be wondering, um, you know, what's behind that, and you're, you're not going to, be able to answer some of these questions or objections, and uh, that's understandable. But just don't think that because you can't answer them at the spot and don't know the answer at the moment that there isn't an answer. Yes, is there out there? Uh, it's the same with the Catholic, who's accosted uh, by a Protestant. And the Catholic, by, uh, the Protestants, of course, are very schooled in, in really Christian uh, Catholics and. Uh, poking at them and, uh, you know, finding weaknesses in their knowledge. And uh, and the Catholic might think, well, I don't have an answer to that, so maybe there's no answer. So, gee, maybe we're wrong, maybe they're right. How many Protestants have succeeded in getting Catholics away from their faith for that reason? Um, just, again, I have a case of one 
very devout Catholic lady, and she really was, but she was being hammered by a Protestant friend. Look, it says right here, Jesus says, Call no man on earth your father. Are you Catholics? Look what you're doing. You're calling your father. You're calling your father. And she went to a local priest and she said, What is the answer to that? He said, I don't know. She eventually lost the thing. Just over that. Because she had no idea. And the priest couldn't tell her. And that's pretty sad. <laughs> it's so obvious. You know. Um, and you could answer that in a heartbeat, right? You know the answer to that. Don't you? <laughs> I don't know if I would know the direction to take that, actually. In other words, no. In other words, no. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, I admire your... <laughs> Just for apologetic sake, does our Lord actually say that? Sure. <laughs> I would say I'd like to see the context of where in the Bible it says that, because we no. don't know what kind of father they're referring to, whether it's uh, being like God the Father, or... Well, that's yes. what our Lord said, yes, or no man on earth, your father. What did she call Or you have one father who is in heaven. Mm. Right. So, Protestant friend, born again friend, hit you with that someday. Say, oh, asking for context is a good thing, yeah. Say, show me that. Mm -hmm. But I think your Protestant friend would think, aha, I caught them off guard. They, either they didn't know that and say, no, no, I mean, I'm, she just never said that. Or they don't, they don't take it seriously because if they knew he said that, and here they go around calling Father Greenwell or Jenkins, and even their own dad's father. And Jesus said that, and it's like, you don't care what Jesus says, the gospel. Mm -hmm. We Protestants care, you Catholics don't care. Mm -hmm. You just ignore them. You're not scriptural at all. That's what they're trying to do. That's the point. Mm -hmm. My Lord was a, a caustic one day, a young man, good master, you know, and our Lord said, Why do you call me good? There's only one who's good, and that is God, God in heaven. Is he good? And so our Lord was objecting to being called good. You know? And they said, Neither shall you call you that. Uh, honor to your father, as your one father is in heaven. Right. You get that? It's there. And uh, so the message is you and your faith are wrong because you're changed, because you call your father, your, your own dad's priest and son. And that's wrong. And that directly contradicts the word of our Lord and Gospel. It seems to. And then all of a sudden, See, you might think, gee, I don't know, I don't know, how do you make that? I mean, she's showing this, she's showing me this in her Bible, her King James Bible, and that's what it says. So I go to my New Way Reads Bible, and that's what it says. You know, great now. But, you know, it, it comes to you, it'll come to you after a while, as your faith can start putting this together in your mind. It'll come to you in a while, because take it easy, you know, like a sentence, because, you know, they've been ban bantering these things around forever just for the sake of hitting you over the head someday. But that's the whole point. That's the one reason they want to remember this, is they can, they can attack you for this. Remember that Protestant, Protestants are pro protesters. That's the whole point. Their, their, their religion is based on protesting against your religion. Right? So if they come at you with something like that, they'll be surprised. 
That's the whole point of their religion, to attack yours. But you know, you can see it that way in the seven, you, know, you actually find Protestants who seem to have a certain love for our Lord. But, but in any case, um, that's not because of their faith, in spite of it. But, you know, then you realize, well, wait a minute, after that, Jesus himself refers to your father and your mother. I mean, after, after saying that, Jesus himself, later in the Gospels, used the terms father to apply to a father on earth. The Gospel itself says that. And I mean, how would our Lord contradict the Father who he says there's the one Father in heaven, when the Father in heaven revealed the Ten Commandments and the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother is one of his commandments. So, I mean, you can figure this out just on the basis of what you already know. There's something fishy going on here, something funny about that. But that's not what I learned meant. And I can prove it, I can show it. If I just had another, like, 15 minutes to think about it, I would have figured it all out. But by that time, they moved on to something else. Um, so you know enough. You know enough to be able to get to the root of this and show that their interpretation of that piece of scripture is, is faulty. And you can prove it to them from the scripture itself that it's faulty. Right? Uh, and I mean, you keep reading. You keep reading the, uh, the epistles and so on. And I mean, St. John, St. Paul, they, they use the word father to reply to, you know, even our Lord talks about uh, St. Paul, your father, your father Abraham, your father Abraham calls him, calls him father over. So their understanding of scripture is very faulty. And you can show it, you can prove it to them. You need to be ready to do that. And the reason I mentioned that is, I mean, you can get have the same thing happen to you if you are traditional Catholics, I mean, they can really get you off the track. And be using arguments that really have no, no basis. So the important thing is, and I think you caught this, but you caught these arguments are not accurate, not good, they're not sound. But these things are being thrown at us. And uh, we, we like to know what's going on. The trouble is, in the classroom, when I'm telling this to our students, they're all sitting there with a look on the face like, I don't need to know this now. You know, I even tell them, I said, look, I know that look, and you're telling me, you don't need to know this now. I mean, you're traditional Catholic, you know what's up. And, you know, and I'm telling you, well, you don't, maybe you will need to know this soon. The day will come when you'll be, you will need to know certain things. But at that time, what are you preparing for? Final exams. Right? Exams. You don't need to know this now. You don't need to the exam. So I can see why, you know, the inclination would be to table this information, okay, when I need to know it, I'll go find out, okay, but I don't need to know it now. But I just hope that when you escape these hallowed walls, you have enough information to know that information is out there, and you can, you can get answers, the answers uh, are definitely there. I have some of the answers, I think, they're good enough for me, anyway, they're good enough for anybody else. Um, so I, I, I'd like to think that we can all agree here that the church really is in a state of disarray, in a state of crisis here with Francis at the helm. And that does change certain things. But, you know, when you, when you ask these questions about jurisdiction, validity of sacraments, authority, and so on and so forth. Um, 
you can look at these things in a very narrow way by trying to zero in on canon law. And uh, what you are experiencing now with this salsa guy, it's the same thing that I was going through when I was essentially your age. Honestly, I was your age at one time. Dinosaurs still roam the earth. And uh, when we had this guy uh, named, uh, what was his name? Some guy out of Pennsylvania or New Jersey uh, was quoting canon law left and right. I mean, he somebody got, somehow he found a quote of canon law in an old bookstore and he got it. Now he was like, Gresham, the, 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 the cannabis, you know, Graziados, and he, he was the expert. He was throwing canon law around like it was going out of style. Yes, it was. And uh, everybody was very impressed because nobody knew. And it occurred to me, you know, you can really uh, be like a snake oil salesman and just quote this and quote that. You can make it in case you want. There's kind of, you know, people don't know. They don't even have a reference to go and find out what you're saying. And I thought, you know, this, this could be really heavily abused. But the, the more more people got involved in trying to answer this catalog thing, thought, you know, this this is this is not on the right level here. This is taking us the wrong way. And then with the Turk bishops, Father Chicago got into canon law, quoting this canon, quoting that canon, quoting the other canon. And I thought, you know, he's really, this is really, this is really confusing and probably deceitful. Um, I mean, he, he was saying, he was trying to make a case that uh, according to this canon, that canon, you know, uh, we're wrong for telling those who go to the Turk bishops, wrong for telling them they can't receive communion here. Um, and he, he quotes this canon, you know, and uh, that talks about, uh, you know, the reasons for denying Holy Communion. And there are, I mean, the canon that actually says there's, outlines reasons for refusing Holy Communion. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm looking at this canon, I think, wait a minute, the canon says there are reasons for denying Holy Communion, such as this and that, and that, such as this and that. It didn't list all of the reasons, as though if these aren't the reasons, you can't deny Holy Communion. And I mentioned to Father Chicago, I said, you know, you say you can deny Holy Communion according to Cape Canada, according to Canada law. You can deny Holy Communion for this reason, that reason, that reason. He said, but it, it doesn't say these are all the reasons, it's just such as the reason. He said, and you know that very well. You're deceiving people. After all, I mean, if somebody came up to the aisle of a bikini, you wouldn't give the Holy Communion. It's not down here anywhere. It doesn't mention the immodest or inappropriate dress in the canon. But if some guy came up in a baseball cap and wouldn't take it off, you wouldn't give him Holy Communion. I mean, people would be scandalized if you did, you know. And he, what did he say? I mean, it was true. He wouldn't do it. So I said, here you're trying to trying to make it sound as though because, you know. So those who go to the bishops don't fit this category, that category, that category, you can't, then it's a, it's a crime to deny the Holy Communion. The fact is, these are just examples. And there are many other reasons why. I mean, if, if somebody appears to, has the smell of alcohol on his breath and seems a little unsteady, you wouldn't give him Holy Communion. It doesn't mention anything like that here. So there are a lot of reasons. You know, and you go to the old, uh, the old moral theologians and they spell it out more thoroughly. Canada law, they don't smell it. So again, this can be used to really deceive people. 
lead them astray. And here's the problem, okay? Because canon law is just one aspect of, of Catholic tradition. Catholic tradition is so much more than canon law. Catholic tradition is so much more than canon law. And if you're going to be a traditional Catholic, you're supposed to be following Catholic tradition. In Catholic tradition, I mean, what, what is Catholic tradition? It's basically the, the church's history. Catholic tradition is, is written in her history. It's the, it's the work of the Holy Ghost. That's what our Lord said at the Last Supper to the Apostles. He was going to send them from heaven. He said, it is said that I will leave you, but it is in your best interest that I go. Because, he says, I will send you from the Father. I will send you the Holy Ghost. And he is the one who will be your permanent Advocate, I will send you from the Father a, a permanent advocate who will remain with you always. And he will bring to your minds whatever I have taught you. And that's the role of the Holy Ghost. So what Francis is doing now and all the rest, when they're inventing new doctrines, that's not the work of the Holy Ghost. He didn't come to invent new doctrines. He came to keep us on the right track of what our Lord himself had taught us. And that was the point. That's exactly what I would say. So, so the Holy Ghost's purpose here is to guide the church through all of this time, this world. And um, we see his work in Catholic tradition. So when you when you look at the history of the church, and I know, you know, no not too many people really like studying history, but the history of the church is different, I think, than just world history. You have in the history of the church, some very different, very definite things, very definite categories of things. For example, in the history of the church, you find there are things that the church has said are always and absolutely necessary to be Catholic. But there are certain things that Catholics must believe, and there are certain things that Catholics must do to be Catholic. Always, everywhere, no exception. Right? You look back at the church's history, you know, but there are also certain things that Catholics must not believe and must not do because they're so completely alien and antithetical to Catholic belief. And that's another whole category of things. And how do we know what those things are? The church has judged these things, you know. In other words, even with canon law, say it's not what's actually in the book of canon law, it's how. The church interpreted her own law and how the church applied her law in this case and in that case and in that case, right? How did the church apply her law? How did she interpret? How did she understand her own law? Is this mysterious? Not really. Go into any courtroom in the United States of America. They're trying, they're trying a case. How do they decide the case? How do they even interpret and apply the law of our own the United States of America? Precedent. Precedent. It's all about precedent. They go back. Well, in this case, in the case of you know, the United States versus Marbury, or Marbury versus Madison, or whatever, they quote these cases and they said some of what was decided here. You know what I mean? This is how they decide these things. Precedent. The church was doing that like almost 2,000 years before. America even existed. Precedent. 
That's a tradition. Is this tradition? This is how the church decides these things. This is how she interprets her own law. Case in point, okay, everybody knows, not, I mean, it may sound like I'm getting rather general about this, but I'm going to get very specific. But there are just certain ways that we, we have to come at these things, approach these things to understand, be able to even understand they sense it. Honorius the first. You all know who that is. Everybody knows who Honorius the first is. Richard, who's Honorius the first? He was a uh, heretic pope who was <coughs> later on, uh, uh, they they judged that he um, was was a heretic and that he lost his authority as a heretic. What year did he, what year was he? I want to say it was. You're doing great. great. I want to say it was sometime <laughs> in like the 600s or something, but I'm not sorry. Yeah, you got an A plus. Good job. All right. I'm, I'm not going to talk for the rest of the night because you're not 100 percent right now. You deserve to graduate. He's 32. I'm going to raise the first turn. He's elected, and unfortunately for him, there's a problem going on at Constantinople. Heretics were denying that Jesus had a human will that functioned. And this would have undone the whole redemption. I mean, the whole point was that Jesus, God became man and accepted the cross and accepted his death upon the cross. And if he didn't have a human will to function, how could he do that? It like totally undid the whole idea of the redemption. It's very serious business that heretics would deny. And it makes nonsense of what Jesus said in the garden. He said, Father, if it is possible, let this chalice of suffering pass to me. But, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. Well, he had the divine will of the divine son, but he, that will certainly wasn't opposed to the Father's will. But his human will had to conform to the Father's will. It made that happen. So, of course, he had a function again. But these heretics were saying it wasn't. But this would be trouble because... It was a source of a lot of dispute and disarray and confrontations in Constantinople. So Sergius uh, decides, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to compose a creed that kind of just covers that over. And it's so vague that Catholics can sign it, monothelites and physites can sign it. And we can all get along with one big Catholic family. And we don't even have to believe the same thing, right? Because we can all sign the same creed. Well, that's what he did. And somebody reported him to the Pope, Honorius I, saying, hey, this is not, you can't do that, right? Catholics don't do things like that. But your patriarch of Constantinople is doing that. And so Honorius answered, well, you know, these things are very divisive. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to make a people decree here that everybody has to be quiet and nobody can talk about this. And the emperor thought, hey, that's the ticket. That's the way to keep everybody, you know, everything calm. We just tell everybody. You can't talk about it. We'll make it a crime. We'll throw them in prison. We'll even kill, put them to death if they were going to make trouble like this. That's it. They didn't believe the freedom of speech. Right <laughs> well, you know, the only ones who would obey, they might be able to agree with the heretics, were the Catholics. So they all went quiet. Guess what? The heretics didn't care. This was wonderful. You know, the Pope did them a great favor, silencing all the Catholics. So the heretics could just blast away all their heresy. This is not a good thing. And there were men who actually stood up and said so. Um, Catholic bishop 
the end of Jerusalem, Sophronius, was subject to Constantinople at the time. Well, at first, I mean, he was trying to obey, but he saw what happened. He said, this, this isn't right. You can't do this. And he said, there's a higher law that, that requires us to speak out. So he did it. And um, uh, Maximus, the confessor, was an old man at that time, but he wasn't the silence. There were others who, who not only defied the papal command, blatantly, flagrantly de de defied the direct command of Honorius I. But they actually broke the law, and they were subject to being persecuted. In fact, uh, Maximus died in exile. Uh, he was being, he was just bored to death. Uh, that's how they sent people. Oddly enough, where they sent him was the Kherson, precisely where the Ukrainians and the Russians are fighting each other right now. This is where the, they were sent for exile back then. And that's where Maximus died. Uh, they couldn't get to Sophronius. Why? Because he was a bishop of Jerusalem, and the Muslims were breathing down his neck at that time. Within 10 years, they surrounded Jerusalem. They took him. And uh, Sophronius, he had a lot of problems. You know, he had problems back in Rome. He had problems at his doorstep with the Muslims. He was a great guy. <laughs> he had to be really strong. But anyway, but he was. And uh, so inevitably, uh, what happens is uh, Honorius dies. And uh, the Pope who succeeded him was there for a very short time. And then and the next Pope was named Martin. He was the first, Martin the first. And he had uh, witnessed firsthand the damage, the damage that Honorius had done. And he reversed it and he withdrew Honorius' decree. And he commanded, he, he stated the truth of the faith that Christ had a functioning will against the heretics. But in doing so, he also was breaking the emperor's law. So the emperor sent soldiers to kill him, kidnap him, put him on trial, and he wound up suffering the same fate that Maximus did. He was sent to exile and was basically worked to start to death in exile. The question that, that matters here is not, did a pope make a decree? When everyone recognized he was the, he was the Pope, there's no question, he's the Pope. Did he give a decree? The answer is yes. Um, the question, did Catholic bishops and priests disobey him? And the answer was absolutely. It's un, in, incontrovertible, it's undeniable. They, they blatantly defy him. How did the church judge that? That's the question. Her, her authority, her tradition, is what answers the question. How are we to see this now? Martin the first is Saint Martin the first. Sophronius is Saint Sophronius. We have a feast day of Saint Sophronius. Maximus is Saint Maximus the Great, they call him. All of these men defied the decree of Honorius the first. Every one of them. Just flagrantly disregarded. And the church can bless them. And there are, feast, there are feast days of these men in the calendar of the church today. Not just the local calendar, on the universal calendar of the church. That's a, that's a statement there. And in the year 680, 680 second council, I think second council of Constantinople, this is the third or fourth, I forget. Anyway, it was provided, presided over by a pope named Leo, Leo II. And that council excommunicated Honorius I condemned him as a heretic because he favored the heresy. 
And Leo II is also considered a saint now for having done that. All of the men who condemned Honorius, who defied Honorius, were actually canonized by the church for what they did. Because of their courage standing up for the faith. That's a state. That's a real powerful state. Honorius has never been labeled a saint anywhere. I mean, there are lots of saints around him. But like Liberius in the time of Athanasius, the man who, the Pope who censured Athanasius, like so many of the popes before him, so many of the popes after him are called saints by the church. Liberius was never called a saint. Because he actually favored the, the Arians in condemning Athanasius. So the standards for being a good pope and being a saint are very high. And uh, if you don't live up to the responsibility, you're not going to be a saint. <laughs> They're not going to call you. Anyway. Now, the point is, these men actually flagrantly violated the law of the church. The canon law of the church. The church canons. For what they did was right. Um, there's a lesson to that. And our Lord left that happen because it's a lesson that we all need today. But the point I'm making is, that we have to look at the Catholic tradition and see how did the church judge this to know what was right and what was wrong here. How did the church interpret her own laws? That's what these people aren't doing. None of them do it. They're not really following Catholic tradition. They're following particular things. When the, when the new code of canon law, when I say new code, I'm not talking about John Paul II's code that came out in 1983 and 84. I'm talking about the new code of canon law during Pope Pius X, he's the one who worked on it, and it came out after World War I in 1918. But it was issued, it went 2,414 canons. And the last of those canons was four words. I think we talked about that. The last of those canons was four words in Latin. Salus animarum supreme lex. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. And that's how the church crowned her code of canon law 2,413 canons of canon law were crowned by the last canon. The salvation of souls is the supreme law. Why? Because that's why God became man. That's why God established the church. That's why that the cross is salvation of souls. That's what it's all about. All other laws are merely ecclesiastical, man-made human laws. And all other laws have to yield to that law. What serves the salvation of souls is the supreme law of the church. The church says so right there. Go look it up. I mean, not, you won't, I don't know if you'll find it, where you'll find it in John and Paul II. But, you know, go check the Code of Canon Law before. Uh, before that, and you'll find that there, 2,414. So, again, I mean, this tells you what the church's tradition is. And the church's tradition has more authority than any pope, or all the popes put together. The Church's tradition is the work of the Holy Ghost. It, it actually has more authority than all of the popes put together. In fact, the Church, the, the popes derive their authority. The popes derive their authority through that Catholic, through that, I'm sorry, Catholic tradition. Father, is there, um, like, 
I, I believe that like that, but that's the one thing that I feel like is comes up the most in like debate with Nova Sordos is that the Pope's like whatever the last Pope said, like goes over the precedent of every, everything set before. So what, like, what are just a couple of things that I could like throw into the conversation where they could like read more about this or where I could read more about this? Because that's like the one thing they don't care about tradition anymore at all. It's completely out the door. They're not Catholics. Yeah, they, they it's so frustrating. Gosh, yeah. You're dealing with Protestants. But that's exactly what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with Protestants. And uh, for that, you know, you have to go back and have to study the meaning of Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. In the catechisms, you won't find a lot of that. But in the writings of the fathers of the church and the doctors of the church, mm-hmm. you will find treatments of Catholic tradition and the significance of Catholic tradition. Um, you know, you know, Kenny, it's really, really interesting to hear that because it's exactly what the modernists were looking for. Yeah. It's exactly what the modernists were looking for. I don't know, it's with some reluctance I tell you to use this, but you can read it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, Pope Pius X actually covers that question in Ascendi on the errors of the modernists. He talks about the modernists understanding of tradition, what tradition is. Mm-hmm. The trouble is, to understand that, you need to know the terminology that he uses. And to know the terminology and understand it, you kind of have to have a background in philosophy. Um, but Pius X actually does talk about you know, what the modernist sees, what he means by church, what he means by Bible scripture, what he means by sacrament, what he means by tradition. And his whole concept of traditions. Well, you know, some of your modern friends might read it and say, yeah, I agree with St. Pius X. You say, oh, so you, you think the modernists are wrong. Well, no, he's telling me what the modernists think, and I agree with him. Yeah, that's what I agree with. I agree with the modern, what the modernists think of tradition. Okay, but St. Pius X is condemning that. Realize that, but I'd be very interested if you'd read that, tell me what you got out of it. Especially in, in a very brief way. I mean, he doesn't go on for pages and pages and pages, but he does summarize pretty well what the modernists have to say about Catholic tradition. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to launch into that here, <clears throat> but for them, it's kind of a sh- shared memory. And, um, but again, it's, it's more like we're discovering all kinds of new things. The, mo- the modernist is kind of uh, schizo because the modernist says that <clears throat> there were certain great religious leaders in the history of the church, in the history of the world. Because they're talking about Buddha, talking about Moses, or Abraham, talking about Confucius, talking about Mohammed, talking about all of them. They say that these men had a very, very refined religious sense, modern senses. Mr. Francis, I mean, you catch a lot of this, what he says. Um, and these men had a very, very refined or powerful religious sense. And what that meant was that their experience of the divine 
was unusually sharp and 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 and, uh, and uh, uh, vivid for them. They had this experience of the divine. That's what moved Mohammed. That's what Confucius and Buddha, Abraham, Jesus, and it was so powerful. And Jesus even experienced himself as like the child of God, son of God. And um, as he expressed this experience to others, others were so captivated by the story they told about their experience of the divine that they wanted to share that. And so they became their disciples to share in this powerful Guru has such an extraordinary experience in their mind, something. And um, through that person's preaching and teaching, they could also kind of tap into that experience themselves. And as, as that Guru taught and so on, and his fame spread, and more and more disciples came to him. His, uh, their image of him was kind of distorted. And they began to make him sort of superhuman. They began to attribute superhuman powers to him, like he was something extraordinary, not merely an ordinary man, but even had the power of miracles. And then after he died, then they would lionize him and make him into something almost divine. They did that with Jesus. They transfigured Jesus. They transfigured him. So that when Jesus died on the cross, the Jesus of, of history, the actual flood and blush Jesus, flood and blood Jesus died on the cross, that was the end of him. But that's when the Jesus, the Christ, the Christ of faith came alive in the souls and the memories of his disciples. He was resurrected in their memories and they that's when the Christ of faith was born. And so what you and I believe in is not the real Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, died, and was buried, that's the end of it, but the Christ of faith who lives in us by faith. So now we carry on in us, his faith experience lives in us, continues in us. But that experience that Christ had of the divine during his life, that led him to do and say the things he did. Uh, living us in us today, uh, that that ex experience evolves. You can't say that the Christ ex faith experience remains exactly what it was. Each generation has its own faith experience too, and so you are kind of adding to and evolving within you the faith experience of Jesus of Nazareth. The kernel is there, the, the core of it is there, and yet it's personalized in you. And with each succeeding generation. Each modern generation brings its own personal interpretation or flavor to the faith experience of Jesus of Nazareth, who is our original guru, our teacher. And that's why it's modernism, because our modern experience of God is the current experience of who God, who God really is at this moment. And now the next generation will have its own faith experience. And you will give it its you will give them your core experience that came from Jesus of Nazareth long ago. And they will build on it. And there it would evolve. And they will then they will experience God as he is 
then in that modern world. So it goes on and on and on with this evolutionary concept of faith experience. So, I mean, is it kind of different? Is it different than the Catholic faith that you learned? Modernism? A little bit? It bit. sounds like you can tell how it's a synthesis of all heresies because even in that it had Gnosticism, Jewish Kabbalism, Freemasonic alchemy. That's it, you get a name. You get two little stars. So <laughs> it's so sneaky because they dress it up in. Yeah. They, they call it Christian. You know, but it's not. It has no, no connection whatsoever with Jesus Christ. In fact, it's totally contrary to When our Lord told the apostles, I will send you the Holy Ghost to guide you and keep you faithful to what I have taught you, it says exactly the opposite of what these people are telling you. You know, telling you, oh, okay, just believe in the faith experience, but it evolves in you, change it, make it modern, you know, make it real today, make it apply to the modern world. Which is, uh, it's exactly the opposite of what I would say. The world will hate you, he said, you know, because the world hates me. But that's not the message of the moderns. The message is, no, it's in the modern world that you, you find who God really is. Gnosticism, right? Yeah. And that's what the, that's actually what the Novosaurus really is, honestly. It is a modern Gnostic, it's a modern uh, variation, you might say, of Gnosticism. And it's designed to mislead the Catholics and to lead them away from Christ and to prepare them for the Antichrist. I mean, what could be more perfect than that to prepare them for the Antichrist? Who will be Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, but he will have this powerful faith experience that makes him superhuman. The whole world will look to him. To share in his faith experience. His faith experience will not be good. It'll be the sense. It's all there. The, I mean, the, the seeds of the world religion, the coming world religion, are all right there. You know who said that? Not Father Jenkins. And if anybody, Father Jenkins said that, nobody paying attention. I know that because they say it every year. And nobody paid any attention. <laughs> but you know who said that? Somebody very interesting said that. A man named Ettore Gotti Tedeschi said that. You say, who would sound? Well, if you're watching what happens, believe you know. <laughs> <laughs> you heard of Vigano? Anybody heard of Archbishop Vigano? Mm -hmm. yeah. The Archbishop who is blasting away now the New World Order. The Archbishop who revealed a few years ago an open letter. Francis knew about this pedophilia. He knew about this. Don't listen to him. Don't believe him. I personally handed him the information on this in a big box from America about this Theodore McCarrick who was abusing all these children. And Francis is saying, I never knew that. And then this Archbishop, Archbishop Vigano, says, don't believe him. He's lying to you. Then he goes into hiding because he says, they're going to try to kill me. Now, you think that'd be kind of newsworthy? No. Oh, Archbishop says, oh, the Pope's lying, that he knows all about the Piathea. But now the Archbishop said that I told you, now I have to go hide because the Pope's going to try to kill me. Eh, well, turn the page, what's next? <laughs> Hello? <laughs> what kind of dystopian world are we living in right now? Um, <laughs> and Archbishop Vigano is still in hiding because he says, they might still try to kill me. 
I'm surprised like, the secular um, media didn't latch onto that too because it makes it makes the church look bad and that's all they want to do is make the church look like it's really yeah. dystopian, right? Yeah, it makes it yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it's true. Well, they can know what he's talking about. I mean. He know he knew how it worked. I mean, look at look at all the people in Scripture in the Vatican who died mysterious deaths. Look at back in the eighties the, 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 the discovery that the Vatican Bank was working hand in glove with the Bacco Rosiano in Italy, which was run by the Masons, and the and the, the P two lodges of the Masons were actually laundering money through the Vatican Bank. And you see a man like uh, what's it like uh, Calvi? You see a man like Calvi wind up hanging by his neck, dead from the. Blackfriars Bridge in London, his pockets stuffed with Italian lira, because he revealed this. He revealed the secrets of Italian masonry. You know, it's like, oh well, you know, those things happen all the time. And this is all over the press, as you say, to make the church look bad. Well, no wonder. I mean, it's Vatican II popes so make it look pretty bad. And this is a matter of record. This is not. I mean, there was an Italian, there was an American Polish Archbishop Marcinkus who was actually hiding in the Vatican because the Italian authorities wanted to arrest him. They had to fly him out of the Vatican by helicopter because if he landed in Italy, they'd arrest the guy for all of this fraud. Billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of lira being, being rewarded to the Vatican Bank. This was very notorious back then. I mean, and then, you know, after that faded from the, I, I mean, the head of the Swiss Guards is murdered in the Vatican. He, he tried, you know, the guy's 32 years old. He's fit as a pill. They find him dead in the apartments in the Vatican. No cause of death listed. I mean, this is, what's going on here? This is like, this is like Godfather movie. <laughs> you ever seen the movie? I so, the Godfather. It's incredibly, incredibly bad. I mean, the Renaissance people would be shocked by some of this stuff. You know? <laughs> it's like Alexander the Sixth, like, you know, he had nothing on these people. Dante would have a field day. Oh, holy right smokes, yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't have enough ink. Uh, they have to redesign his own dome in Florence. Uh, so, this is kind of the crazy stuff that's going on around here. You know? These people are pretending, oh, well, you know, you know, pass us all, please, you know, it's like, but it's crazy stuff. I mean, you know, unless they, they, they get the blinders off, they're not going to appreciate Well, Vigano was appointed by, uh, by Benedict to examine the Vatican finances, to find out what's going on. He had the, he had the role of gubernatore in the Vatican for, during the years of Francis. And he was assigned to find the corruption that's going on the Vatican. And the man who was in charge of the Vatican Bank at the time was a man named Torre Gotti Tedeschi. He was a banker, a financier, a Catholic. He was put in charge of the Vatican Bank. This was to clean this up after all that crazy mess with all the, 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 the involvement with the, with the Masons. And, um, when, when Benedict resigned, Francis fired Tedeschi immediately. And Vigano got kicked out and sent over here as our, uh, as the um, people of Lucio to America. And they thought we were kind of putting him on ice over here. You know? Let's get him where he can't do any damage. Uh oh. So they made a mistake there. 
That's when he became familiar with all the pedophilia going on over here. He documented it. But Tedeschi, the reason I mentioned Tedeschi's name is he has actually come out now. And he said, look, they've got a new religion, the Vatican. This new religion is the becoming world religion. And they are going to actually market it through the Vatican. He called it environmental Gnosticism. In other words, Mother Earth, right? Environmentalism, global warming, but Gnosticism, Mother Earth. We're part of this divine Gaia worship, Mother Earth. And therefore, I mean, you're seeing all of this Amazonian worship, Pachamama, all of that is part of it. Here's this guy, I mean, he's he's coming out and saying it. He's not just hinting at it. He's saying it. This is what's happening. The Catholic Church is now a vehicle, being used by a vehicle by your enemies to form this world religion. Of environment. He calls it environmental Gnosticism. I'll tell you, guys, that's what he's talking about. You can go online. You can listen to an Italian, you can listen to an English. He's just saying it. He's uh, paying attention to it. Not enough people are paying attention. You, you can. You'll, you'll know. You listen to him, you'll know what's going on. He sees it, he knows it. So, um, in any case, in any case um, it's important to realize that if we are traditional Catholics, it's because we follow Catholic tradition. Do we agree then? Mm-hmm. Makes sense, right? If traditional Catholic, no Catholic. So you, you look back in the histories of the church, you know, the Catholic tradition. And there, as I say, there are certain things that the Catholic Church has always and everywhere said you have to do and believe to be Catholic. There are certain things that you must not know to believe and you must not do if you want to be Catholic. In Catholic tradition, abortion was always a mortal sin, right? Gravely sin, right? In the Catholic tradition, it was always wrong. In Catholic tradition, then you must always believe in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Always, right? If you don't believe that, you can't be Catholic. If you do practice abortion, you can't be Catholic. You can't be a practice Catholic. Things are very cut and dry there. But the Church also has a very, very definite body of which she says Catholics believe and Catholics do. What they do and what they don't do. And, uh, for example, um, it is not defined dogma of the faith that there are guardian angels. It's not a defined dogma of faith. Do you believe in guardian angels? If I got up in the pulpit on Sunday and said, you know, there are no guardian angels, you have to believe in that, what would you do? Would you walk out? I don't know, actually. Probably. <laughs> well, yeah. What would your mother think? She would walk out. <laughs> I mean, she would be disappointed. She'd take you by the ear. Yeah, she, she'd be shy. Well, you didn't come. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would your parents do? They'd walk out. They should, right? I would want them to. Right? Okay. Angels. Not a fine dog of faith, but you know, it is nonetheless part of the faith. Right? It's not been defined because Catholics haven't denied it. There was no need to define, there was not a controversial issue. Um, 
Could the church divide it? Yes. Would she divide it? Yes. It was an issue. So, you know, some a bad guy could say, well, it's, it, one of these people could say, well, it's not really a defined dogma faith. You know, so. But it is offensive to pious ears. It is a sententia proxima heresy. It is, a, is an opinion near to heresy. Right? There are all these theological notes about doctrines. That are, I mean, even, even the teaching of the church's indefectibility is not a defined dogma of faith. But it is a sententia, sententia proxima fide. It is at a position near to the faith. And a Catholic could not, be, could not deny that without getting into serious trouble. But the way these people think, you can do that. You know, because, gee, you know, canon law, um, you know, defines heresy. And heresy is, the, you know, solemnly defined by the church. And this wasn't solemnly defined, so you, you can actually get away with this. And they'd be okay with it. I mean, how could they argue against it? They're justifying with Francis very often. I mean, look what he's saying here. Right? So, Father, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I actually spoke to a um, a person. I don't I don't know who they were. It was on an internet forum. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, somebody somebody uh, who was previously in the SSPV and they left. And the big critique that they found that they couldn't come to terms with was the fact that the SSPV um, and really most like true traditionalist groups um, say that the modern popes are heretics and that they have spoken heresy and that the modern church is heretical and all this stuff, but that they never actually point to a specific dogma or doctrine that has been contradicted. Um, and that was his big hang up. And that's, that's kind of a difficult question that um, he brought up because it, it is true that if you're going purely from a legalistic standpoint, looking at canon law, that it's hard to find because obviously Vatican II was very careful with how they worded things. From a from a actual dogma and doctrinal standpoint. With regard to Francis, it's not hard to find. Well, yes, that's true. With Francis, God wills all religions. Right. I mean, that's heresy. Right. I'm I'm more speaking about Vatican II. Okay. Um, and In Vatican II, you're right. It's more ambiguous. Yeah, which intentionally vague, obviously. Um, but I haven't heard anybody. Any of the societies of positive priests say that the new order church is heretical. Because that would be very vague. And I mean, that would be vague. Mm -hmm. but, but to say the, the Vatican II church is heterodox, I said that because the Vatican II documents are heterodox because they leave themselves open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. And as a Catholic, you can't be heretical, but you can't be heterodox either. You have to stay the faith. I mean, heterodoxy is what Sergius in Constantinople tried with the monophysites, coming up with a creed that they could interpret either way. That's what heterodox means, right? Hetero means either or. <laughs> you know, basically, you talk about being heterosexual, I mean, you know, you are attracted to people of the other opposite sex, right? So it's open to one or the other. You can interpret one or the other. It's heterodoxies. The church has always condemned heterodoxies. I mean, with regard to this individual, I'm sorry, 
But if I, I wonder if whoever it is would actually come in and sit down with, let's say, any of the priests and say, well, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. Or they just said, well, I don't hear that meeting. I don't think that they ever did. This I, I know that they're from Minnesota. That's that's all the information that I have. <laughs> <laughs> all you need but to uh, yeah, so I guess like a question then. So if you were to speak from the pulpit and say that there were no guardian angels, would that excommunicate you in the same sense that saying that Mary wasn't the mother of God? Um, according to the actual terms of the Code of Catalog, thirteen twenty three. 1325, defining heresy, the old code. Actually, actually, spell out, okay, this is not solemnly defined, right, by the church. So, technically speaking, it wouldn't make you a heretic. It might make you a suspect of heresy. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is actually even a canon in the old code catalog saying things that would make you, or even doing things that would make you suspect of heresy, for example. If you were coming to a Catholic church as a Catholic man, you wouldn't remove your hat in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament. If you adamantly refused to remove your hat in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, and you repeatedly do this, even that would make you suspect of heresy. Because it's an indication you don't believe in the real presence. And uh, even that, the, the canon law, the old code of canon law out there was, and this just tells you how certain things were about the belief, you know, the belief that you believe the truth of that if you didn't clear up that that suspicion within six months, you could be labeled an actual heretic. Even if you didn't pronounce the name, I'm not heresy. If you were a suspect of heresy, if something you were doing is saying made you suspect of heresy, and you did not remove the cause of that after you were corrected, you could be labeled a heretic after that, even if you didn't come out and explicitly say heresy. The church wasn't messing around in those days. You know, faith was the faith, and that's what the church was here for. So I mean, if the deposit, positive faith is given to you by our Lord, particularly you know, if you don't take it seriously, you ain't Catholic. Oh, that's how it is with me. So it is, our circumstances. So no, I, I don't think. It, but let me ask you this, Richard. I mean, okay, suppose I say, look, you know, I, I'm looking through uh, Ludwig Ott's uh, fundamental of Catholic dogma, and I, I'm on page so and so, and. Here's what I'm reading here. And I've got the original German, but I can read that for you too, which I do with the original German, by the way. I could read that for you too. I know. <laughs> but I got the English translation. Unfortunately, the English translation is really a lousy translation. I but anyway, I'd read it and I'd say, look, look to God. This has an imprimatur on it. And he says that, you know, they're guardian angels. And says, let's say it says, Tensia Proxima. Fide, uh, so sentence near the faith, right? Or sententia chapter, a certain opinion, a certain position to hold for Catholic. Sententia chapter is another category. So it's not actually defined by the church. So I'm, I'm just telling you here now that this talk about guardian angels, nah, I don't believe that. You know, that's not really a matter of the faith either. You don't have to believe in guardian angels. Technically speaking, the heresy necessarily wouldn't make an uh, case. No, might make it a case that I'd be suspect of heresy, and I have to review my position. Then. But would it be scandalous? Would you all be scandalous? Absolutely. Christ mm-hmm. be scandalous. So much of what Francis does, it says it's scandalous. It's 
speaks Catholics. Such that people who are not Catholics say, well, if that's the Catholic faith, I want to part with it. Mr. Francis, they think he represents the Catholic faith. This is where the damage is done. It's terrible. It's scandalous. Now, have you ever heard me? Have you ever heard me from the pulpit stand up and say Francis is not the Pope? Yeah. You ever hear me say it anywhere? Yeah. What do you hear me say? Something along the lines of, "It's hard to imagine that he could be the Pope." <laughs> <laughs> well said. I, I think <laughs> but, but, yeah, I can say that. Yeah, I can quote you quoting me. <laughs> what is my position? What is the position of the society's advice that differ regarding the We have no authority to define whether or not he's the Pope or not, but we have reason to suspect that he is doubtful authority. Yeah, okay. Well stated. Yeah, that there is an objective doubt. So, hey, pretty good. Somebody's paying attention. I'm running out of gold, sorry. But basically, that's what it comes down to. So, I think we have this very reasonable. Position which everybody wants to brand as Sedevicantism, but there are so many flavors and species of Sedevicantism. The, the word has basically come kind of meaningless. Now, when somebody uses the expression, I say, Well, what do you mean by that? I mean, as somebody at Sedevicantist were saying with the conviction that Francis is not both privately, publicly, or are they Sedevicantist for doubting that it's the Pope privately or publicly? Or are they saying to the Countess when they say that uh, uh, Francis doesn't act like a Pope? Does that make him say to the Countess? Like, what, what are you saying here? You know, the society said Pius X priests will go, you know, just come out with it. Oh, the Pius V uh, said to the Countess. Even though know, they've been told any number of times, they don't care about the truth, the truth doesn't mean anything. They just use that and throw it out there and silence all critics. But I mean, um, they would have you believe that it's certain that Francis is the Pope. And then they don't do anything he says. Well, I had a question about that. I know that's super contradictory. Would that make them schismatic if they believe in his authority but don't obey? Well, that's a very good question, Buddy. And I've actually asked some of them. Just recently, I mean, we had Father. Uh, Father Lalo in town is a friend of the, uh, he's a former student of mine, actually, years <laughs> ago. Um, and I, I always take a chance to kind of poke him about that, because they're always throwing up the city of Catholic business. And so, you, you know, you got a real serious problem here, because you claim he is the Pope. And then you don't do anything he says. Because in practice, you don't really don't think he has any authority to tell you anything you don't want to do. And of course, uh, I've asked the, the head of their seminary in Australia, I brought that up to him too. He says, oh, we'll be, we'll be. I said, oh yeah, name one thing. Name one thing you've done that Francis has said. You know what? He sat there and sat there and sat there and said, well, maybe we better you know, review that question. He just kind of tabled it. Couldn't think of a single thing. One example. But I think that makes I think it makes them informally systematic. Informally in the sense that they don't think of themselves as being systematic or think of it being systematic to do that. You know, 
that, they probably would give you some argument. Like Father Bilal would give an argument, which I thought was not very much of an argument. I told him so. But I kept saying, like, that's why we need to sit down and talk about this instead of throw, you know, throw tied messages on rocks and throw them together. We need to sit down at a table and talk about these things. Nobody wants to do that except you. But anyway. Um, but I mean, it is a very good question, but I think if somebody says, yes, he's absolutely without any doubt, well, if you doubt it, then you're, you're a saving artist and you're this and that, and you're a bad guy, and, uh, whatever. But we say he is the Pope, but in practice, we believe that he doesn't really have any authority to tell us what to do, which is really a denial of the very concept of papacy. But see, there you're getting into a problem with all these people. I mean, all of them, Salsa, the rest of them. Because they're all purveying this new concept, this neo, neo, whatever you want to call it, concept of papacy. That yes, Prince is the Pope, he's the whole Pope and nothing but the Pope. But no, we don't have to do what he tells us to do if we don't like it. And that is the new papacy. And that's exactly the modernist concept of papacy. So all of these people are actually falling directly into the modernist net. Their faith is being changed. They are actually falling for exactly the modernist concept of papacy. And adjusting, they're adjusting their concept and their belief in the papacy to fit Francis. And this is fatal. Because the time you're done, there's no papacy left anymore. They've just destroyed the whole concept of the papacy. Father, um, when uh, Pope Honoris was the Pope and we and you were talking about the saints that like defied his orders, what do we know what they thought if he was like did they think he was the Pope in like that current time or did they was, not really there say There was much? no question at that time whether he was the Pope or not. He was the Pope? He was the Pope. Oh yeah, he still listed it as the Pope. Yeah. Because they they did make this distinction. I mean, if you read the condemnation that came out from the Council of Constantinople mm -hmm. uh, under St. Leo II, I mean, it listed Honorius with, with all of the blatant heretics as a heretic, called a heretic. But Honorius never actually pronounced the heresy himself. He just silenced those who would who would expose it as heresy. He silenced those who condemned it as heresy. And because in his position, he favored the heresy, then he was considered no, no better than heretics themselves. It's sort of like this, okay? Uh, let's say Joe here gets a job as a night watchman. You do. Both They get a job as a night watchman, okay? So their responsibility is to prevent Vandalism, theft, whatever. So one night, they leave the gate unlocked, they leave the gate wide open. They're in there playing cards, video games, whatever. They hear the truck rolling, <clears throat> they hear all this movement, like all this merchandise is being shifted around, loaded on the truck, and driven away. They're busy playing video games. Nobody interrupts them. Are they responsible for the theft? Well, in the eyes of the law, they, have, they can be prosecuted, right? It's one of those ways in which you can actually be a cooperator in the sin of another. We talked about that more than you know. 
uh, about going back right to the Seventh Commandment and stealing, how you can actually cooperate in the sin of another and steal. Because you failed to fulfill your responsibility. Now, I was walking by and I saw these guys loading up these boxes and I said, hey, there's a there's a theft going on here. And I and I walked and I watched them right away. I wouldn't be responsible. But you're on the payroll, guys. I mean you're it's a contract, it's a responsibility you have to prevent that from happening. So you have a responsibility I wouldn't have. No, I'd say I feel a moral responsibility called cop. But you didn't even get out of there. You might as well go and help and say, hey, you need help? Do you have that? We'll load it up. So because of the responsibility of what Oregon is, he was considered to be no better than everything. And he was guilty of the heresy because he favored it. And it was his moral responsibility to oppose it with everything he had. That's serious responsibility. Mm -hmm. That's why, even though he never came out and pronounced an agreement with the heresy, he was he was labeled officially by the Catholic Church as a heretic and classed with the heretics and condemned with the heretics as a heretic. <laughs> um, it's pretty serious business. When you go back and you read that condemnation, you read, realize this is this was serious business back then. Now, you know, that does raise a very interesting question, okay. Did the church ever label him as an anti-pope? No. Uh, did the church ever label him as a uh, ever ever, let's say, depose him afterwards or call into question his papacy? No, the church didn't have to because the church basically said Pope or not, he had no authority to issue that, that decree. He had no authority to bind Catholics to silence in a case like that. And Catholics who obeyed him were disobeying Christ. That's why she canonized those who disobeyed him, because they were obeying Christ, that's what the church said. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting, you know, when the popes were traditional, the modernists were trying to convince everybody they didn't have to obey them. Now that these men are modernists, now they're trying to make them think, oh, you know, everything we say. Francis was even asked there in, in, in an interview with the Spanish publication, a Spanish newspaper. He was asked, well, what, what do you say? When do we know that you're speaking magister, as a magisterium? When do we know what you're saying is magisterial? And Francis' answer was, well, every time I speak, I'm speaking as a magisterium. Everything I say is magisterial. That's again, if if you see the Pope as kind of the mouthpiece of the faith experience of the people, then whatever he utters is an expression of what the people are experiencing, their faith experience. Have you ever read the document when Francis actually established his synodal church, Church of Sin. It was the 50th anniversary of Paul VI establishing the first synod. And Francis actually was in the middle of one of these synod. He was synod on the family. And he issued a document commemorating the anniversary. And he, he actually spelled out there, he outlined his concept of the church and of the papacy. And it was it was it was radical. It was just radical modernism. 
he, he outlined it. He says, the synodal church, and that's what he says. He says his church is the synodal church. Okay. The question is, is it the Catholic church? You can't be the Catholic church. Well, read what he says about his synodal church. He's got it there in black and white. He says that synodal church begins by listening, listening to the people. Listening to their experience of God, faith, Catholicism, listening to the faith, listening to their experience of faith at, at their level. So the church listens to that, hears their voices, understands their message, their meaning, and then the church leans from them, want their actual modern day experience of Christ is. The clergy then, who have actually listened to them and heard this, so the clergy must then present this to the bishops, the voice of the people. The bishop's role then is to discern from the voices of the people of their experience, must distill this down into a number of documents. And what they're doing is they are interpreting from listening to the people voice to them their experience of faith at the moment. The bishops then present this to the Pope, Francis, who will no longer be called the Vicar of Christ. Did you know that? He, he took that off the list. And the Pope's job now is to put all this together and reduce all of that to some simple formulas, statements of faith that reflect the faith of the people. He says this. It's in the document. This is what the papacy is for him. To hear the voices of the people. This is what the faith really is now. The experience of the people of living the faith. Are they divorced or remarried? Those are the voices. Are they transgender? These are the voices you need to hear. These are the real voices of the real people in the streets. The people who are living in adultery. People are doing this. People are taking drugs. And to listen to their experiences of faith, they have to report this. In the Amazon, okay, worshiping Papa Mama, Asha Mama, and all. You have to listen to all of this. This is the authentic voice of faith. The bishops and kind of basically boil it down to a number of documents, and the Pope then has to reduce them to statements, like dogmas, but he doesn't want dogma. He hates dogma, he says it. Dogma is too fixed, it's too rigid, it doesn't change. So Francis's job is to take all of this and distill it down into simple, straightforward statements, which are constantly evolving. That's what the Pope does, every Pope comes is meant to do that, to distill the faith experience of the people down to the dogmas of the moment, which are no dogmas at all, but simple expressions of the faith experience. If you read what Francis wrote there about his concept of the church and his concept of papacy, and even his concept of himself and his role, you see that's exactly what St. Pius X condemned in Pashenti. Same thing. It's not the Catholic Church at all. And he just issued now, and they've issued this guiding document for this new synod on synods. <laughs> you laugh if it weren't so stupid. 
Um, <laughs> he's having a synod on synodality. So we're, they're trying to decide by synod what synodality really means, how it applies. Okay. <laughs> and Francis says, no, in the sacrament. We have to show that we're open, and we have to show that by our openness to including the LGBTQIA plus M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E. <laughs> we have to include all of that in this process of discerning what the faith is. We have to discern, also we have to include those who are living in broken fam broken homes, living in adultery. They have to be included in this whole process of discerning the faith. Uh, this is the latest document on the Synod and Synodality that's supposed to actually convene in October of this year when they're really going to launch this new religion, which is an old religion, it's just Gnosticism, as you say. Um, and there are people who cannot see or will not see that this is directly contrary to Catholic faith. And they will minimize this stuff. They say, well, you know, Francis, I mean, it's kind of goofy, you know. They will do anything to get, away from, to get around the fact that this is a latent. Um, it's apostasy. It, it, it is apostasy. Now, let's call it It's just a apostasy. They're using words like faith, hope, charity. They're living words, church. They're using words, sacrament. Uh, using words like Eucharist. And this is the thing about modernism that St. Pius X says. I mean, they can tell you they believe in the Immaculate Conception. And you think, oh, well, that's wonderful. Gee, Father Schnickelfritz over here believes in the Immaculate Conception. But then you ask him what he actually believes. And you find that that he has a very different de definition of immaculate and a very different de de definition of conception. He says, of course I believe in the act of conception. I mean, we don't believe in original sin anymore. Everybody's immaculately conceived. So I believe in the immaculate conception. Oh, that's handy. They, they use the words, they don't believe the faith anymore. Francis doesn't believe the faith. I don't think he ever had the faith. I mean, the, the, these people get all wrapped up in this question of, well, you know, can a pope lose the faith? Can a pope lose the faith? If he lost the faith, would he lose the papacy? And you know that St. Robert Bellarmine talked about this. There were quite a number of theologians who talked about this. And the fact is that these theologians, such as St. Robert Bellarmine, actually said there are various schools of thought on the subject. And they're all Catholic in the sense that these are all perfectly Catholic ways of thinking. And that uh, three of the five that St. Robert Bellarmine lists allow for a pope becoming a heretic. There is one, there is one uh, theological writer. Unfortunately, his name is P-I-G-H-I-U-S in Latin, Pigius. <laughs> <laughs> but he cited St. Robert Bellarmine, side by quoted by St. Robert Bellarmine saying, I think he's the one who says, no, he, if a pope is a pope, he cannot ever become a heretic. God would never let him become a heretic. And that's the extreme one 
that no, the Pope can never become a heretic. Period. The other positions agree that a Pope can become a heretic, that he can lose the faith, but they're different. Again, they think about the consequences. One position says, well, the Pope can become a heretic, but he would remain the Pope. Another says, I think this is the position of Kajitman, that a Pope can become a heretic and he would lose the faith, and therefore he would lose the papacy, because it would be as though he died in losing the faith, but he couldn't be, no Pope can be deposed because there's no higher authority, but you'd have to have the hierarchy of the church come together, meaning the bishops, acknowledge the fact that he was a heretic, as a matter of fact, that he had lost the faith, and the consequence was, therefore, he, he had died. And he, he was no longer the Pope because essentially he had died for the faith. They didn't depose him. They just said, what well, he's teaching is heresy and therefore he's not Pope. Therefore he's not a Catholic anymore. And the fact that he's not a Catholic anymore, he's not Pope. And another position, I think this was the fifth position, St. Robert Bellarus said, a, a Pope could become a Catholic. I don't know. A Pope could be, that's helpful for Francis, a Pope could be a a pope can become a heretic, but if he's a manifest heretic, a manifest heretic, the church itself acknowledges that he's not a pope. Okay. Now, when St. Robert Bellarmine proposed these, he didn't say that position is condemned by the church or that position has been condemned by the church. All of these positions were viable Catholic positions that the church had acknowledged that these are reputable theologians, speaking as Catholic theologians, they have voiced this position as a theological opinion, and the church hadn't condemned any of them. You know what that means? That means as a Catholic, you're perfectly free to embrace any of those positions you want. And just because the Society of St. Pius X says, we're telling you, you can't, you can't think like that. Then you say to them, well, yeah, jump in the lake. Who may, you know, who do you think you are? <laughs> this is a perfectly viable, acceptable Catholic position. St. Robert Bellarmine himself said it was a perfectly acceptable Catholic position. Who are you to go around telling me I can't believe that? I can't hold that position. Well, what they're doing is they're pretending to be the Pope himself. They're pretending to do what no Pope has ever done, to anathematize a position the Church has never anathematized. Who, who do they think they are? And they have the nerve to call us St. Vincondus. Oh, bunch of bones. <laughs> and that they're doing things like that. And I mean, just tell them about right, you know? You know, you go around throwing these, this word around, you probably don't even know how to spell it. <laughs> and, you know, we're just holding a very perfectly legitimate Catholic position that St. Margaret Bellman said was perfectly legitimate. And you're telling people they can't hold this position. And I said, well, who do you think you are? You know? And this is the problem with people, you know, bias the tenth, that you think you're going to make dogmas. And you can't. This is precisely why we why we will not come out and say publicly, authoritatively, that Francis is not the Pope, because we know we don't have authority. This is why we will not come out and give marriage annulments, like you will pretend to, but we won't, because we realize we don't have the authority to do it. And you have the nerve to think you can do these things. That's why we are not you, right? Because we said we don't go along with this, and we were thrown out for that, you know. Um, so, Anyway, basically that. But everything I'm saying. <laughs>
But, you know, so here you have these perfectly legitimate Catholic positions. But, you know, when you start thinking about these different Catholic positions that were presented by St. Martin Bell, you realize, well, you know, you have this position, yes, the Pope can become a heretic, but if he becomes a heretic, he loses the faith, and therefore he loses the papacy. And you realize, well, Picius, I think it was Picius, held the position. In other words, the position was given, I'm just not sure if it was Picius, but the one guy behind it, that a Pope cannot become a heretic, and they're saying the same thing. Basically, they're saying the same thing. A pope cannot be a heretic. If a man's a heretic, he can't be the pope. And if he's a pope, he can't be a heretic. Right? It basically comes down to the same thing. Papacy and heresy do not mix, can't go together. So they all basically acknowledge the fact that a heretic pope cannot be a Catholic, but a Catholic, if he's not a Catholic, he can't be a pope. Now, what Father Dolores was saying, well, okay. If he lost the papacy, there's no decree, and so legally he's still the Pope. Legally he's still the Pope. And so we have to pretend that he's still the Pope. But then you say, well, okay, and, until when? Well, until there's a, an authoritative decision made that he's not the Pope. Well, who's going to make that authoritative decision? Well, I guess the bishops would have to gather and they have to make that decision that he's not the Pope. So. Aside from the obvious that these modernist bishops are probably not going to do that. <laughs> the, the whole thing is kind of a nonsensical question. Anyway. So Father Delalo, they're not just singling him out because this is the highest position. That the, the hierarchy would have to get there, have a council, basically, and acknowledge that Francis had lost the faith and that you know, the consequences are there. And say, well, Look, even if that were a possibility, even at normal times, that a pope could just be went off the rails and was saying these crazy things. And maybe the bishops got together. I said, do you realize what you're saying? I mean, this whole idea of calling together a council of bishops to decide this is really also kind of problematic because, I mean, let's, let's say I get a thousand bishops together at a council to question, answer the question of whether Francis or anybody else, Pope, you know, Bob, uh, you know, was teaching heresy or not. So I get two thirds of the bishops to say, Francis is teaching heresy. He's a heretic. And a third of the bishops say, no, he's not. Or he's not, he's not a manifest heretic. Or he's not a pertinacious heretic. Or what he's saying can be interpreted. So, you know, it's not heresy. Right? Not really. Hello, Father. Come on in, join the fun. <laughs> so, uh, but you see a problem. If a third of the bishops come out saying he's not teaching heresy, or they excuse him, and two thirds of the bishops say he is, and he's not, he's not the Pope, what do you got? You got schism. The church breaks up over this. So the this idea of having this question solved by a council is setting the stage for some real serious problems. Um, really serious problems. Would that? How, well, how does that relate to conciliarism? Well, conciliarism says that the council of the church have the ultimate authority. That they actually have the ultimate authority to decide what the faith is with or without the pope, and they have the authority to, to depose a pope and appoint a new. And the church says that's not true. The Pope is the successor of Peter, 
vicar of Christ, and so he can't be deposed by a council. Um, that's why, you know, even this idea of when a pope became a heretic, he could not be deposed. It would be up to the hierarchy to get together and just acknowledge a fact that he had lost faith. And by that, that fact, he, lost, he was no longer Catholic and dying, essentially. It's as though he basically had just dropped dead. So, you know, but, but again, Father Lama was telling me what the pious attempt, the position is. So he said, okay, well, suppose that, you know, it actually happened that it was determined that a pope had been a heretic for however long. And what would happen then? Well, the answer was, well, then retroactively, all of his acts as pope would have to be undone. Think about that a bit. All of his appointments at Cardinals, nullify them all. Make them go in. All of his decrees, all of his decisions, you know, diocese and everything. For years, you just would say, oh, you know, we just decided that Francis wasn't the Pope for the last five years, so that means we have to undo everything. I mean, is that even hypothetically possible? The scandal's already... The damage is already done. Yeah, the, the faith is already destroyed in countless souls. And, I mean, in other words, I'm saying, folks, these people are not living with reality. I'm sorry. They're living in kind of a fantasy life. But I think the thing that is most offensive to me is that they're living a lie. I think they're all living a lie. You know, there are people who went to get married over at Pius uh, X, for example, because they say, oh, they have the, the, the approval from Francis. Well, okay, that's significant to you, but if you talk to the priests over there, they don't care whether they have the authority of Francis. They were doing these marriages, they do them anyway. Even Francis said, don't do those. They don't care. So you get married over there because they have the approval of Francis when they're telling you, what's that worth? That's nothing to us. You know, it's kind of like a lie. It's like a fake reach, something that's really cute. And one of these very people who did that was asking the Endel uh, Society of Peter, St. Peter, priest in Dayton, you know, well, what if Francis came, you know, who was telling her, well, look, we're obedient and we're approved and all that, we're legitimate. And she asked him, well, what if, what if Francis were to come out tomorrow and say, you cannot operate more, I'm, I'm suppressing the fraternity of St. Peter, you you have to say the last. And and he said, well, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. So I think, okay, here you're making this big deal about you. The same as us. It's, it's a lie. Yeah. It, it's so dishonest. You know, they're deceiving you. And that's the one thing we're trying not to do. We're trying to just be right above the people. But then you got people who don't go to Pius X, who go to the who go to the Latin Mass or traditional Mass in the diocese or whatever, down at Old Saint Mary's, I guess, right, or across the river to Our Lady of uh, Lords. 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 So they go over there, and they say, "Oh, we're approved. We're okay. We're you know." We're and you say, "Well, is that the Catholic Church?" They say, well, yes, yeah, it's the Catholic Church. Sure, it's the Catholic Church. Well, do you believe in the new mass? Would you go to the new mass? Most of them would say, no, well, I wouldn't go to the new mass. Give them time, they'll go to the new mass. Give them time, they'll find a way. It'll start working on this. When you, make, when you start compromising, it's 
limitless. There's no end. Right? When you start that, it's like going into free fall. So when they compromise, they're done. Uh, pretty much done. But it is a compromise to say, well, I'm going to go and practice the traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo. Because you say, well, the Novus Ordo, I mean, is Catholicism. It's the Novus Ordo Catholicism. The new Mass, I mean, is that the new catechisms, the Francis Central Church and all that? Is that Catholicism? Well, at least most of the people would sit here as they have and said, no, no, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go to the new Mass. No, no. But they have a Latin traditional Mass, and I can go to that because it's approved, and, and I know that that's okay with, with Rome. But you're trying to practice the traditional Catholic faith within the Novus Ordo, which you say is not the Catholic faith, and is not the Catholic religion, but you say that is the faith and religion of, you say, the Catholic Church, but you say it's not the Catholic faith, the Novus Ordo, but you say it's, the, it's, it's, it's in the same church with you, and when you go practice the traditional Catholic faith within the non-Catholic Novus Ordo faith, church, you're, insist, you're pretending that this is one church, okay? But how many different faiths can you have in one and the same church? How many different faiths can you have in, in the same church? Is that a fair question? Didn't Francis himself say the Novus Ordo is the unique expression? So he said you can't even have Exactly what he said, Dundee. Exactly what he said. That the traditional Mass, the Latin Mass, does not express anymore. That I have the modern faith. A follow up question about that. So, with the Ecclesia Dei communities, did they have to agree with John Paul II's profession of faith? Because I don't understand how they could agree to assent an intellect and will to him. But then, after Traditionus Custodes, when he says that the traditional Mass isn't the expression of faith, how they can reconcile those two? How can they ignore that? Yeah. I know. Well, when the, when the Ecclesia they broke out with um, the Indole Mass, initially it was said that the bishops who allowed it would have to have everyone who would come agree that the the, the Novus Ordo say is Catholic, is perfectly Catholic. They had to agree to that. But then once they agreed to the Novus Ordo Mass was Catholic, then you'd say, well, why are you insisting on having the traditional Latin Mass? Why don't you just go to the new Mass? Because that's where we're at now. Well, it's a matter of taste. I just prefer that or whatever. But even when they established the fraternity of St. Peter, the rules actually required the fraternity of St. Peter priests to come celebrate the new Mass with the bishop of the diocese at least once a year to show that they accepted the new Mass as being Catholic. In fact, uh, this Father Sean and Father Shannon down there, they were ordered by the bishop as a condition of his accepting them. They were ordered to say the new Mass to join in signing the new mass, come celebrating with him. And they refused to do so. They said they would not do so. And the bishop told them, which is kind of strange, you're getting this bishop's approval, you're moving into his diocese, you're asking him to 
you know, and then he tells him, well, you've got to kill somebody to ask me. No, I'm not going to do that. Then he told them, well, give me about a week. I forget how much time he had, he had to think about it. And in the end, he called him back in and said, never mind, you're not going to do that. Some vision. You know, some vision. And you'd think that would send up a signal like, hey, what kind of Mickey Mouse operation is this? But that, never mind, you don't have to do that. So that's how they were able to stay down there. But they said if, if they were compelled to do it, they would just leave. And they can't even accept it. The mass that, that the bishop of their diocese is saying, you know, what kind of nonsense is this? How can anybody claim this is Catholicism? Under that, and they were ordained. They were both ordained in the Novosor by Novosor bishops who are who are themselves consecrated in the Novosor, but the Novosor right. How can they claim to be traditional? I, I, I I mentioned to be traditional, you have to do the things the church has always said Catholics have to do. And there, you can never do the things the Catholic Church has said Catholics must never do. But there's actually a third category of things. And that is there are things that the church has said are the right thing to do, considering the times and circumstances, like crisis, and times of crisis. The church has always had her canon law. She's always also had laws that govern missionary territories, for example. But it's not possible to follow the letter of the canon law. Um, the church has always acknowledged that there are certain missionary circumstances. I mean, there's a man who the church holds up now as a, uh, as, as, a as a great what well, they want to canonize, Father Miguel Pro. Uh, but Father Miguel Pro was, you know, a young priest. He was moving through very hostile and very dangerous waters there in Mexico, trying to be taken over by the communists. He's being followed by somebody, you know, there's a young young gal in the street, he put his arm around her and they go down the, the, the yeah, he was dressed in civilian clothes as though they were a couple, you know, but that'd be kind of scandalous ordinarily, you know, it was just a subterfuge. But he would actually also offer the mass at homes and leave the blessed sacrament present in the homes and leave the blessed sacrament in a cabinet locked up in the, in the private homes because he, he, if I have to take this with me, I'll expose it to danger. Now that's strength of all to do that. That would really be totally against canon law. Did the church ever condemn him for doing that? No. As the church understood the circumstances under which, under which he was dealing, that was the right thing to do for the sake of the salvation of souls. And so, you know, you look back at history and you see there are many times under circumstances of, of war, of persecution, and so on. When you know, the bishops and the, and the priests, they, they just made the sacraments available to people. And the church came through and said, they were right. They did the right thing. Yeah, the letter of canon law, I mean, they didn't hold them to that. I mean, there were bishops during times of the Arian heresy who went through, through lands where there were Arian heretic bishops and they were consecrating bishops. In this, um, in this video, he even brings up like, one uh, situation where I think it was, uh, who was a Pope, uh, JP2 did the same thing in like Eastern Europe. And so like if they, they allow it for their people, but not, not for like ours. Yeah, it's like the Democrats, you mm -hmm. know, they have their justice and we have ours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That doesn't count for, for them. But it does. I mean, you, you look back at the history of the church, you see the church's living tradition, you see um, 
that the church made allowances, but always for the sake of the salvation of souls. That's her supreme, supreme law. Because she saw that ecclesiastical law is human law. And human law always can, cannot provide for all possible circumstances. Human law can't do it. The commandments do. But ecclesiastical law can't. So there's always... That's why the church has written into our law this idea of ecclesia supplants, the church supplies jurisdiction. Um, under these circumstances, but the church gives you basically the outline of the circumstances, but can't identify every single circumstance that can possibly arise. So, um, but this, you know, I consider people who are trying to run us off, off the track on these sidetracks as being kind of legalist, legalisms in their mind. They're trying to make us thinking, not traditionally, but legalistically, and uh, I mean, I, I consider them to be kind of con artists. when you start talking to them, well, if you're ordered to do this or you're ordered to do that, then the law would require you that you do it. And some of them would say, "Yes, I would." Then you say, "Oh, so you, you you actually throw a host on the ground and stomp on it if they told you to do it?" You know, I mean. You see the way they're handing out the host now, people are stomping all over where the particles of the host are falling. So essentially, they're really doing that. They'd say, well, you know, they say it's okay. It's got to be okay. But they really are. They're stomping over. Uh, or they'd say, no, I would never do that. You'd say, but, but that's what you're telling me the law requires. And, uh, uh, but then they, they reveal the fact they don't really mean what they say. They're just using it as like Protestant, basically, you know, getting over the heavens. Put you on the spot. Now, I, I'm sorry, I, maybe maybe I haven't really addressed specifically. <laughs> I'd like to. I, I, I'd actually like to get that on the list here. Uh, would you be willing to meet again? Absolutely. And I'd appreciate if you take what I said tonight and try to, uh, you know, put it into how would it actually apply to the people I'm talking to? And let me know. I mean, are there things that I've said tonight that might be helpful or not? And if they're not, let me know why. Because we were talking about basically the, the principles underneath these things. And if you don't see that, you can't really, you can't really see why this is going off in the wrong direction. But um, I, I really we're not trying, we're not avoiding answering your questions. I won't answer. <laughs> but uh, so background. Context. Yeah, context. Exactly. Yeah.